Well, it is good to be with you this morning. And it's good to have the opportunity to open God's Word. So if you could, and if you would, would you please open up your Bible or your device to John chapter 3, the Gospel of John, the fourth book of the New Testament. We're going to be stepping out of the Matthew series, and we're going to pick that up again this fall. But with it being Missions and Local Outreach, or Emphasis Month, it seemed fitting to go back to the passage of Scripture that is at the core of the Gospel. The, good, or the Gospel is the good news of Jesus Christ. How he descended from heaven, lived a perfect life, gave his life up for our sin, or as it says in 1 John 2, Jesus was our atoning sacrifice for our sins. And not only for our sins, but also for the sins of the whole world. Died on a cross and then was resurrected to life and now sits at the right hand of the Father in heaven. The message of Jesus is rather simple. And the path to a relationship with him and eternity in heaven can be obtained only through him. Because he is the way, the truth, and the life. John 14, 6. And it is a work of his grace and his great love for us. So a relationship with Jesus is the only way to heaven. Today's passage contains some, what I would say, very familiar verses and a story that's often discussed. It also addresses, though, the issue of working for our salvation versus humbly submitting to God by accepting him as our Savior. As they say in the real estate business, what matters most is location, location, location. Today, we're going to move into this passage, and as a Bible teacher, I would say, Context, context, context. So to capture, I think, the full grasp of the significance of John 3, 16 through 18, it's important for us to know why John includes this interaction with Nicodemus. So here's context number one. Who's writing the book of John? Well, it's widely accepted that it was written by John, the son of Zebedee. He was one of the 12 disciples in the Gospel of John, there are six verses that the writer, John, but he doesn't name himself, but he describes himself as the disciple whom Jesus loved. Peter acknowledges John. Jesus on the cross acknowledges John. And John is an eyewitness to all these accounts. Context number two. The four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, serve to tell the same story of Jesus, all from what I would say a different point of view or vantage point. That is why you will see one Gospel see a same event and record it from a different point of view. Many of the stories and teachings may occur in just one or two, and sometimes just a few, four Gospels. Each Gospel and their writer, though, serve as one who tells and proclaims the good news about the resurrection of Jesus Christ and the coming of his kingdom. One writer summarized each of the Gospels this way. Matthew, which we've been hearing, presents Jesus as the Jewish Messiah, the fulfillment of the Old Testament promises and hopes. Mark portrays Jesus as the suffering Son of God, who offers himself as a sacrifice for sin. Luke's gospel gives careful detail about Jesus as the Savior for all people who brings salvation to all nations 
and all peoples. But finally, John describes Jesus as the eternal Son of God, the Messiah, claiming that he is God and sets himself apart from any other person that has ever lived. In the final context, John himself shares the purpose of the gospel that he writes in John 20, verses 30 to 31. He says, Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Verse 31 Chapter 20, that you, those that are reading it, may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name, in Jesus' name. When was the last time you read through the Gospel of John? Was it last week, last month, year, never? Well, I would challenge you to just take some time in the next weeks to spend some time reading John, the whole book. Because it's one of the most helpful books in the Bible to keep the main thing the main thing. The importance and the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. All right, now that we know the purpose and we know the context, let's dig in. We're going to go a couple verses back into chapter 2 just to see what leads up to Nicodemus coming. And so in verse 23 of chapter 2, it says, When he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was a man." And then it says, Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? And Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you'll hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from, or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus says to him, How can can these things be? And Jesus answers him, Are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I had told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. 
There's quite a bit to unpack in this, and so let's, but let's not forget John's purpose. It's that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing in his name is what gives us eternal life. So in this next kind of verses, we're going to learn that the new birth is essential for entering God's kingdom. John introduces us to a person named Nicodemus. This is the same Nicodemus that is later mentioned in John 7 as he raised his voice on behalf of Jesus as the Sanhedrin plotted against him. He is also mentioned in John 19 after Jesus' death. He prepared his body for burial with Joseph of Arimathea. So in verse 1, now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night, the first half of verse 2. John tells us a lot about Nicodemus in that little part. Probably four things. He was a man of the Pharisees. The word Pharisee simply means separated one. These were men that were devoted to the law. They were described as meticulous expositors of scripture. They were involved in both religious and political matters and highly regarded by most Jews. But did you, this little known fact, did you know that they created a 24-chapter book about how to keep the Sabbath, the day of rest? Yeah, they became more focused on the doing and keeping than experiencing God's love, grace, and forgiveness. It also appears that the man that he listens of the Pharisees is that Nicodemus most likely held a very high position amongst them, maybe even being one of their key teachers. Because Jesus even refers to that in verse 10, as refers to him as a teacher. So most likely he was among the 72 governing elders called the Sanhedrin, as one of the rulers of the Jews, it says. Since Jerusalem was under Roman rule, they were allowed to have their own governing body to deal with the Jewish issues that would come up. Nicodemus comes by night. It's hard to know really the original intent, but it could have meant one of two things. But I'll say I don't think it really impacts the story or the point. Coming by night might have simply meant that he was coming to Jesus at a private time when crowds Uh, would not be present, and he could have a person-to-person conversation with Jesus. But it also could have meant that Nicodemus was concerned about being seen with him. And it is also interesting in John's gospel how often uh, John alludes to these things of light and darkness in contrasting good and evil. But Nicodemus opens up with an observation And I'll tell you, he comes up with an amazing conclusion in the second half of this verse. Rabbi, we do not know that you are a teacher. I'm sorry. Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God. For no one can do these signs that you do unless God is in him or with him. For a Pharisee to state something like this says something about Nicodemus. Because earlier, the religious leaders had been embarrassed as Jesus cleansed the temple, not long before this. Nicodemus seemed to like he wanted to understand more completely what Jesus was saying. And it's interesting, he says, when he uses the word rabbi to address Jesus, to begin this question, that was a mark of respect. Rabbis often disagreed on, on different things. And that's why each of them would have a different following of disciples. 
Nicodemus connects the signs from the end of chapter 2 that we read to signs that only God himself could do as a result. He sees Jesus differently than others claiming to be the so-called Messiah. But rather than Jesus just saying thanks, as Jesus does, he dives right into it. Let's remember in John 2, 23 to 24, it says the people believed in Jesus because of the signs he did. He knew, Jesus knew, without the signs, people would not have believed in knowing this. And he knew this. He steps into it with Nicodemus in verse 3. So Jesus answers him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. You know, we as followers of Jesus Christ understand this concept of born again rather quickly and simply. It's not a physical birth. It is a new birth in the spirit through the work that Jesus Christ did. Jesus was most likely intentional with the word again because it can have an additional meaning that means from above. Born from above. But he's telling Nicodemus that without being born again, you have no way of even seeing the kingdom of God. And he'll later expand that a couple verses in verse 6. But then as we read, he foreshadows that concept right in the beginning of his book, John does, in chapter 1, verses 12 through 13. He says, but to all who did receive him, who believe in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. In other words, born of the Spirit. John is showing us that as God's children, it's not by the way of our humanness, our flesh, that we can be called children of God. It is because of the transforming work he does through his spirit in our lives. Nicodemus would not have had the advantage we do. This would have been a new concept, I think, to him. And we'll see that in verse 4 as Nicodemus says to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Well, one, re one writer put it this way. We cannot conceive ourselves and we cannot become ready for birth on our own. Physical birth is the result of two people deciding to procreate and then joining their bodies as God designed. Spiritual birth is similar in that the newborn is not able to bring about his or her own birth. It must be done on his or her behalf. But unlike physical birth, spiritual birth is strictly the work of God. And so as John wrote just what we read in chapter 1. We see that Nicodemus is focused on the flesh, the works of man to be justified before God. And Jesus, again, kindly answers him in verses 5 and 6. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and spirit, and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Notice he uses enter, not just see the kingdom. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. So now Jesus adds, born of water and spirit. This time around, he now moves to this point that entrance to heaven depends on those things. 
since Nicodemus was a leader, his depth of scripture and the law would have been extensive. But this concept is very confusing to him. But I bet you it would have stirred up or sparked some kind of thought or memory for him of Ezekiel 36, where it speaks of that very concept of water and spirit from within. Nicodemus' perspective really, though, was limited because he was focused on the earthly plane, the the flesh. But Jesus knew that he was having trouble understanding it. So Jesus walks him through a couple more illustrations. So in verse 7, we pick up. He says, Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. See, Nicodemus was religious, not regenerated, though. So he could not see or experience the difference between the two planes. One pastor put it this way, flesh produces flesh, spirit produces spirit. Spiritual life is a mystery to the physical realm. It can't be obtained through physical means. The spirit of God, the Holy Spirit, the the source of all spiritual life can't be impressed to give life as a reward. He will not sell eternal life, which is priceless, for anything temporal, which is ultimately worthless. Listen to this. Religion is man-made. Religion is of the physical realm, impressive on earth, but rubbish in heaven. But I have to give Nicodemus some credit at this point. Because as we often read, the Pharisees and the religious leaders of the time, they would often, when they heard Jesus, they would scoff at him. They would threaten him. They'd walk away. They would stir up trouble well before this. But Nicodemus stays engaged and probably even curious. He wasn't afraid of a debate or a deep discussion. He was a man that wanted to learn and understand. He even shows he is willing to listen to something that seems so contrary to his beliefs and theology. But in our deeply divided country and world, are we people that are willing to listen to those with different or contrary ideas? Are we willing to ask fair questions and be asked questions? The next thing we see is that John now introduces us to this idea that new birth comes through the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. And so there's a bit of a transition as Jesus is now going to give him some examples in verse 9. He says, Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be? Jesus answered him, are you the teacher of Israel and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I had told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. I don't think Jesus is really impatient at this point 
because he knows Nicodemus' heart. I'm sure he's saddened that such a learned man sees far, you know, it seems so far from understanding. Nicodemus is still stuck, though, on that physical plane um, of, in the flesh, in this world, and not the spiritual level. He is stuck in religion, the law, and doing the right things so that they can earn salvation through his good works. But remember that as believers in Jesus, we have the Holy Spirit and the truth of God, and we have his word, and they are revealed to us by way of the Holy Spirit. Someone without the Spirit is not able to see unless the Spirit reveals it to them. That is why some of our most simple biblical truths seem like a foreign language to people without Jesus. All Nicodemus is known. And Jesus has just shared an illustration that confronts this issue head on. We see this progression in these verses as he answers and he says in verse 10, you do not understand. Verse 11, you do not receive or slash accept would be another way. In verse 12, and how can you believe? Well, consider this. If Nicodemus is considered the man of the Pharisees, the ruler of the Jews, a teacher of Israel, this is supposedly, I would say, the captain of the team. You know, the one that would lead them to the promised land of heaven. So if Nicodemus is this blind to the truth, imagine how blind and misled the people in Israel would be. But why is it so hard for Nicodemus, especially since he had witnessed and heard testimony from many about the signs and teachings of Jesus? Well, if you remember even at the kangaroo courtroom for Jesus with the Sanhedrin, that they brought so-called witnesses to convict Jesus that didn't even agree with each other. Testimonies and witnesses were the way at that time they determined truth. However, in Jesus' case, Nicodemus and the religious leaders bypass the way they typically seek truth when it came to Jesus. And in verse 12, Jesus acknowledged that spiritual realities are more difficult to believe than truths that can be tasted, smelled, touched, etc. So we need to remember that as we interact with people that don't know Jesus yet, they may just not, it may not have been revealed to them. In verse 13, Jesus now presents Nicodemus with something that will hopefully help him Put all these pieces together. Verses 13, Now no one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. So Jesus really packs a lot into these two verses. I imagine Nicodemus' mind would have been racing and just trying to keep up. The depth of what Jesus says and its consequences to his current beliefs would have turned what he's always known completely upside down. Jesus is claiming that he is God, that he is the promised Messiah, and he is the fulfillment of the Old Testament. 
But to further drill down, Jesus now is going to clearly use these very things that Nicodemus knows and help him see by doing this. Because Nicodemus has to make a decision. He's going to make a decision just like we do to either accept Jesus' message or reject it. It's likely that Nicodemus would have immediately known what Jesus was telling him in verse 13. Because it almost comes directly from Proverbs chapter 30, verse 4, where it says, Who has ascended to heaven and come down? Who has gathered the wind in his fist? Who has wrapped up the waters in a garment? Who has established all the ends of the earth? What is his name? And what is his son's name? Surely you know. (laughs) Yep, Nicodemus does surely know. It's God. Jesus even connects himself to the title Son of God, which, interesting, John uses 13 times in his gospel and always with a connection to Jesus' claim of being God. Most likely, Nicodemus would have connected this also to the Old Testament prophet Daniel in chapter 7, where Daniel's vision speaks of the Son of Man as the Messiah. Nicodemus now faced with this new reality of this physical world, his flesh, his disobedience that doesn't lead to God. But Jesus, in his kindness, now reveals his purpose for coming. In Old Testament terms, he does this with Nicodemus, and he's going to leave no room for misunderstanding. He is revealing to him how a person's life is regenerated and transformed and born again. Jesus goes back to Moses in Israel's checkered past. In Numbers 21, verses 4 through 9, we'll pick it up, the full story, but to summarize the first part, the Israelites had been delivered from slavery, escaped through the Red Sea, followed a pillar of cloud and fire. These are amazing things, and they quickly forgot. They began to grumble and complain and walk away from God. So God, in his loving kindness, decides to discipline them, to get their attention, to bring them back to himself. And then we read in verse 6, Then the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people, so that many people of Israel died. And the people came to Moses and said, We we have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he take away the serpents from us. So Moses prayed for the people. And the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole, and everyone who is bitten, when he sees it, shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on a pole, and if a a serpent bit anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent and live. Notice he didn't take away the snakes, but he did heal. Those in the wilderness didn't realize it, but this event in Israel's past served as a way to foreshadow what Jesus did for all people when he was lifted up on the cross. The message to Nicodemus, the readers of the gospel, and to all of us is this, and it's simple. When we acknowledge our sin and our disobedience, we take responsibility for it, and we come to Jesus for healing, you are no longer living as one that is of the flesh, but of the Spirit. I love how the Apostle Paul puts it in Romans 8, 
verse 5 and following. He says, For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who living according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind of the Spirit is life and peace. You, however, are not in the flesh, but you're in the Spirit. If, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you, anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. It's interesting now we're going to kind of see this transition again to kind of a new point as John the writer puts it, but as Jesus dialogues, we see this idea of new birth now is going to be experienced through faith in Jesus. In Jesus alone. See, we are children of God. We are born again. We are regenerated and transformed by the Holy Spirit's work. I'm going to say that's some good news. That's why we're here. There's some debate over the next verses if they're part of Jesus and Nicodemus' dialogue or John summarizing what Jesus had to say uh, he had said to Nicodemus. But in either case, it doesn't detract from the truth of the lies of these very familiar verses. For God so loved the world. He gave his one and only son. Sorry. That whoever believes in him should not perish or in a sense be utterly destroyed or lost, but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. So whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. We've read these verses, I know, many times. Many of you have maybe memorized it. We see people with big signs on the streets, at ball games. We hear it quoted in song after song, secular and Christian. Sometimes I find myself reading by it because I know it well. But I haven't taken the time, and maybe you haven't either, to consider what is it really saying? Well, I was able to do that this week, and I'll tell you, it was refreshing. But could I ask you to consider, as I said earlier, read the Gospel of John and make some notes of the many times Jesus talks about what it means to believe, what it means to be a child of God, what it means to be living in the Spirit, that Jesus is God. You will be amazed. But some things in those verses that I just kind of pulled out that, in a sense, were great reminders for me, and hopefully they are for you as well. In verses 16 and 17, we see that God so loved. He proves his love by giving up what was most precious to him, his one and only son. Even though we are sinners, he came to save us. He wants to be reconciled to each 
one of us. Another thing, Jesus makes it clear that it takes belief in him, not the things of this physical world or the works of this world. He came, though, to save all humanity from judgment. Everybody can go to heaven. God has given us a choice, though, a choice to choose him or reject him. We are either born of the flesh and regenerated and transformed by the Holy Spirit to new and eternal life with God, or we're not. There's no middle ground, no two sides to the fence. Not making a decision is not an option. Jesus is the only way. But the beautiful truth is that there is no one that is beyond his mercy, his grace, his love, and his forgiveness. No matter how far or how much sin we carry, Jesus provided the forgiveness to us by his work on the cross. And we see the result of that in the final verses. Picking up in verse 19. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and the people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. We are his vessels. We are his people. We are his children. Why would people not respond to the light after stumbling in the darkness? In the book of Romans, it says, We have all sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and that the wages of sin is death. Basically, we reject the light because our character is evil. The world tells us that people are mostly good, which is a comparison to other people, but not to God. See, evil can't be overcome by man. Only God overcomes evil. God exposes evil, and only God has provided the way for us to enter into a relationship with him and have our lives transformed and regenerated by his spirit. So in the end, we all will be exposed by the light. But what will be seen when we are? For those that have a relationship with Jesus and have accepted him, we will continue to live in the light and get to know him more and more deeply each day. But you know what? While those that desire to be their own boss, live their life by their own rules, they'll be exposed and ultimately spend an eternity separated from God. So as I begin, it's all about a relationship with Jesus because he's the only way to heaven. I want to leave you with these three questions. First, have you accepted Jesus Christ and have a desire to follow him? I know you might be struggling and feeling even distant or even angry at God. But I'll tell you, the choice is still left up to you. And you will need to make a decision. When you look around at people in your life, family, friends, co-workers, hairstylist, coach, neighbor, you name it, Are you concerned about their eternity? Does your heart ache for them because they don't know Jesus and you know what that means for their eternity? 
would you consider some ways you could intentionally begin to reach out to them? We need to do something. And lastly, maybe just on the back of your sermon notes, if we sing the song after you leave, but I know it's always good when we do it in the moment and then we can fix it, but can you name three people that you desire to see enter into a relationship with Jesus? But what are some of the things you can begin to do now to build bridges and intentionally share Jesus with them? Because you know what? For God so loved the world that he gave his only son for us. Let's pray. Oh, Father, thank you for these all familiar words. They teach us so much. They help, hopefully, bring us to our knees to understand that in your loving kindness, you chose us. You gave us your spirit. So, Lord, as we leave this place, may we be people that faithfully follow you, that have a desire to proclaim your truth to the ends of the earth. We pray this in your name. Amen.